Listener Production. Whether it's a smoothie at 7am, French toast at 4pm or a bacon and egg roll at midnight, this is the podcast for you. It's delicious. It's Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast. Well, it is very exciting when you start a podcast and realise that there are two people out there that are like your podcast siblings, mm. Alex Dyson. And we had that family vibe going in 2020 when uh, the world was changing and we needed uh, that security and comfort from people that we loved and cherished. And in that podcast form, that came in the form of Michelle and Zara from the Shameless Podcast. Yeah, that's right. What a pioneering podcast it was. They've built it from the ground up. And uh, I was very fortunate to be on a podcast they did, particularly around literature called The Books That Changed My Life. Now, if you want to listen to it, usually what you have to do is head to the listener app and uh, tune in from there. But we've got a very special all-day breakfast version for you because a little bit earlier on in the year, I joined Michelle and Zara to chat about a few of the books that changed my life, Matt. You want to talk about books that changed my life? How about my local Thai restaurant's menu? Whew. Mate, every time I read that, it's like <laughs> it does something to me. That that chili basil stir-fry with crispy pork belly. Now, I, I, have, I have sympathy for these restaurants because they are obviously going to some very poor laminators. Why is the lamination always <laughs> falling off these things? Mate, Why can't they last the distance? I love a restaurant that insists on using tissues instead of napkins. <laughs> Just insist on it. Everything's so thin. <laughs> exactly. One use. That's a different conversation we'll have to get into when we're back from a little bit of a, uh, a vacation. But until then, great opportunity for you to hear us outside of the all-day breakfast kitchen. So please enjoy myself joining Michelle and Zara from Shameless on the books that changed my life. Yep. Let's dive in. Matt and Alex, all-day breakfast. This is just the start. Everyone ready? Let's get this show on the road. Let's go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Matt and Alex, all-day breakfast. Going into high school, I was relatively outgoing and, you know, friendly and stuff, but, you know, devastatingly insecure and shy and playing sport, but also in the school musical and uh, just trying to uh, have one foot in both camps. I mean, and there was a point where I turned up to footy training and told Dad to park a little bit down the road because I needed to change out of my tap dance clothes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so I didn't just click my heels into the change rooms. No, you've got to change down the road. <laughs> Changed My Life, the podcast for anyone obsessed with great books and interesting people. My name is Michelle Andrews. And I am Zara McDonald. And on today's show, we are talking to comedian, writer, and potentially aspiring and also was once aspiring <laughs> politician, Alex Dyson, which we will get into on today's show. Maybe again, you guys are about to hear it all. Alex is best known as one half of the Matt and Alex show. He rose to prominence on Triple J's famous breakfast radio spot before using his platform to run for a seat at the federal election in 2019 and write a young adult fiction book called When It Drops. In this interview, we were so keen to hear about Alex's love of reading, particularly when it came to his childhood and how books transported him to a different time and place when he lost his mother to breast cancer in his formative years. We were so grateful to Alex for taking us on the journey and hearing about the books that have made him the quirky, kind and colourful person he is today. Here's Alex. 
Alex Dyson. Welcome to the books that changed my life. We are very excited to talk to you about this one. You're an author. You know all things books. I don't know all things books. <laughs> I know some things books, <laughs> but I'm always willing to learn more things books. Great. Which is why it's an honour to be here on this podcast. Thanks very much for having me. We can't wait. All right, our first question, how do you read? Tell <laughs> us, talk us through the process Talk us through your hobby that is reading. Now, I assume this is sort of how I go about it rather than like I put my finger and I try <laughs> push it along with the word. You know how you can do that? Do you I, do that I to think start? I, growing up, you know, you sort of start with that and Sound then you get rid of it. And uh, other times what I really like to do is to read a full page of a book but be thinking about something else and only realise when you get to the bottom of the page yeah. and you're like, oh. hang on a second, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> We once had a shameless listener reach out and say she reads the last page first and then goes through the rest of the book. I'm like, that is psychopathic. Yeah, that's you've got to worry about people who do that. Just ruin it for themselves before going in. Absolutely not. So do you have a place in your house that you read? Do you read during the working year or is it a holiday kind of thing? Um, I do. Yeah, we're lucky enough to interview a bunch of cool people and we've been getting books through. We talked to you guys about the space between and so you get that and you go <laughs> read through it. Uh, yeah, so I like doing that, but it's so sporadic about where, when. Sometimes it can be in bed, sometimes to be on the couch. Sometimes I got to get out and sit somewhere nice under a tree. Mm. I was just scoping out. We had a little bit of talk about reading nooks earlier on. And I tell you what, if I can fashion some kind of nook <laughs> in a house, you know those ones where there's a window, it's sort of like a bay window and oh, the, you yeah. can have a little oh, seat yes. in this little window that's kind of overhanging. I, I'd really like that kind of nook, I think. That would be, a, that's the dream. I feel like that is where I want to be in life in like my 40s, I think. That's we've, the goal. We've actually found out because we're running a Shameless Book Club Instagram account at the moment and the most liked photos are always <laughs> ones we just find in Pinterest of like bougie book nooks. Yeah, book nooks. <laughs> bougie book nooks. <laughs> it's incredibly popular thing. Anyway, yeah. that's a big tangent because neither, none of us have one. Yeah. What do you think about... I think the the poor the poor man's book nook would be a beanbag. Yes, <laughs> think, it would. I think you start with a beanbag and then you just build it up and up and up and then suddenly you'll have a have a library or something. I have the definition of a poor man's book nook. It's a <laughs> Ikea shelf that I fashioned together myself that's held together by mostly super glue because I did it at like 3am in the morning. You didn't follow the directions. You're like, well, if I just no. glue this, it'll be fine. <laughs> There's <laughs> a whole shelf that I can't put like can't put books on because it's too weak. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the story of my flat packing life. Things just fall away. Our first book, today that you've brought to the table is we have a lot of things to talk about with this book. It's the Artemis Fowl series and we wanted to ask you, take us back to your childhood, what was the book that you read a lot then? This is what you came to us with, the Artemis Fowl series. Yes. We have to admit a couple of things from the outset. Go. We had to do a lot of Googling about this book series. <laughs> yep. And in your response to us, you said, I read this series a lot. I think I bought it based on a pun in the blurb. <laughs> now, I, I stand by that. It's I, it's really interesting because absolutely devoured the Harry Potter series, but there'll be a lot of chat about this, I'm sure, for people's mm. first reading experience. So I thought, what else did I read? And that's sort of one of the main series that I read, starting out with this book, Artemis Fowl. I'm going to take you to the fluorescent bright lights of Kmart Warnable Gateway Plaza. <laughs> Please, I've been wanting to go there forever. <laughs> Walking through the aisles, the book section. And it was a cover, it was a really glittery gold cover, okay, mm. Artemis Fowl. Look on the back. This looks interesting. So cover gets you straight away. Look on the back. And it's about um, <laughs> the lower elements police. Now, the lower elements police are <laughs> fairies that live underground and they're sort of in law enforcement. <laughs> You're losing me. <laughs> lower <laughs> elements police. Stay, stay with me. We're okay. Here, here. Now, the lower elements police, okay, obviously the acronym of that is the LEP, the yep. LEP, Okay. 
And the main character from Artemis Fowl, the fairy who was a detective for the lower mouth the police, was in the reconnaissance section of the police department of the fairies who lived underground. <laughs> of course. <Right. laughs> yes. The recon unit, okay? Yeah. They were part of the LEP recon unit. The leprechaun. Uh, the leprechaun. I was okay. actually quite concerned for a little <laughs> about where this was going. So I'm there reading it as a, a young person. The leprechaun, there's a pun, the leprechaun. It's in spaced in the UK, Ireland sort of area. That's And that's sort of, I, I think Owen Colfer is the name of the author. Must have thought, okay, let's do a book about fairies, leprechauns. How do those... How did that myth come about? And that's because there were fairies and they were part of the leprechaun unit that had to come up to the surface and do all these things. And so... I can't believe a bad pun got you in for like a million books. Uh, a bad pun can make me do a lot of things. <laughs> and that was one of the first. And so I read it and it was it was, it was, qu- it was quite funny in the, the, the antagonist of the book, Artemis Fowl, the tit- tit- titular, titular. titular um, character, was like a 12-year-old criminal mastermind who stored a lot of gold and had this... Um, butler named Butler, who was like a big, strong hit person and everything. There was trolls. There was all sorts of things. And I, I found it fascinating and also quite funny. And then the series sort of progressed. Next book, silver color, cover. Next book, um, ruby there's red got a, I was about to say, there's got to be a ruby red cover. <laughs> I'm not here. sure there's puns coming out everywhere. And, you know, I, I, I found that quite enjoyable. But it was that was that delectable pun that's, that sucked me in at the start. The funniest part about this is when I was doing my research for this series, the first Google question that came up is, why is Artemis Fowl so bad? Well, <laughs> and I well. was like, this is going to be a good podcast. But no, the series sold in excess of 25 million copies. It was translated into like 40 languages. I want to know as a kid, and you're a kid that's drawn to a really clearly fantastical world, why do you think these books were so successful? Like what was it about these books that kind of let your imagination run wild? Um, I think it was the mixture of these fantastical things put into that that police, sort of their no-nonsense talking, like books that don't talk down to children. It was mm-hmm. like making fairies tough. It wasn't, it was making them, you know, cool. Had the, yeah, the female fairy protagonist was great. Arnold's Fowl being, you can sort of sympathise with that butler. It gets into the head of a, of a no-nonsense sort of hitman bodyguard sort of thing. You can see on the outside has got no emotion, but inside has all these thoughts and that kind of stuff. Um, if there's a good idea and it can come from a very tenuous pun or it can come from, you know, the Harry Potter style of things or anything, if, if you've got that at the start and you can you can flesh out the world, I think I think that's something that can, as a kid, you can totally dive into and you sort of, it seems a lot cooler because it's not trying to be cool. Mm. Yeah, You had a visceral reaction to why is Artemis Fowl so bad? Why is it so well, bad? Well, because I think it's one of those, things where once a book does so well, 25 million copies, 40 languages, they're like, right, we've got to make the movie. And I think only recently yeah. it was the, 2020. Mo- the movie came out and was absolutely abysmal. And so, hence, why is it so bad? When you've got a good book to base it off and then you absolutely <laughs> stuff it up. I know, like, was it The Last Airbender movie was an absolute bomb as mm. well and the mm. fan base was, like, totally disappointed with that. Um, but it's, yeah, one of those things. Even watching the first Harry Potter, I was like, nah. They, well, that's the problem. They left out Norbert the dragon. Like, they, are you just <laughs> they absolutely. <fucked> <laughs> yeah. That's the problem. When yeah. you have such a loyal legion of supporters, mm. there's a massive way to 
fools. Like they yeah. already love the franchise so much. There's not a very high like threshold to actually improve their thoughts. This got an eight percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Also, Colin Farrell was in it, and oh, I really? don't know a lot about <laughs> Artemis Fowl, but just from doing the digging, I feel like I've really dived into Artemis Fowl this week. Doesn't seem like a Colin Farrell-driven movie. I cannot picture what Colin Farrell would see. I haven't <laughs> haven't watched the film, but yeah, I think they should really take absolutely stinking books and make good mm. films out of them. Probably is always the best way to do it. So you were a kid reading these books. What were you like at the time that you were reading these books? How old were you and what was your personality like? Oh, man, I would have been probably 12 mm. going into then 13 into high school. And, you know, I was, yeah, relatively outgoing and, you know, friendly and stuff, but, you know, devastatingly insecure and shy and, um, yeah, just, just bopping about, trying mm. to do things, playing sport, but also in the school musical and uh, just trying to uh, have one foot in both camps, which is great because you get so many friends, but you don't really then have that real where do I fit sort of thing. The musical thing's interesting. Were you self-conscious about that? Like I feel like for men growing up or young boys, there's probably that time where it's expected that young men play football and Mm. are quite masculine in their interests. Did you ever feel self-conscious or were you always very much like, no, I will be very shameless in my love for musical theatre and this is just who I am. Um, Certainly self-conscious at times. I mean, there was a point where I was playing football and I turned up to footy training and told Dad to park a little bit down the road because I needed to change out of my tap get. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And so I didn't just click my heels into the change rooms. No, you've got to change down the road. But, um, uh, yeah, in year seven when you're auditioning for the first musical and going in, like I was talking to a few people, trying to get a few people on board, and there were some dudes, you know, who would have been... You go on a roll call, that would have been at the sort of upper echelons of the popularity things. It was like, yeah, everyone came. They had an audition. Great, great, great. So by the time the first rehearsals comes around, the cast has been named. Um, they all decided not to do it. And so I was one of the... You Stephen Bradbury Yeah, Stephen Bradbury Year seven boys who, uh, who kept going. But yeah, ended up doing School Musical every year in the, in the debating. I don't know. I just, I think I just... Like, like that kind of thing. And so mm. you can't just force yourself to not be self-conscious because yeah. I think you absolutely can, but I don't mm. think you should let it stop you. Mm. I think you're right, so. though. I think it's one thing knowing that what you're doing makes you feel a bit awkward and pushing through that anyway, like us starting a celebrity podcast out of nowhere. Like mm. that was awkward to do, but you push through. And you get your first listener thing back, um, your first, you know, amount of listeners and there's, you know, a couple of 50 friends or there's a couple <laughs> of hundred and you're like, oh, These are all okay. high school people, but that's yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it works. Alex, I want to know, you lost your mum very young mm. and you mentioned your dad before driving you to football from tap dance or whatever you were doing. I want to know about the bond that you had with your dad having lost your mum so young. Yeah, it's um, it's it's difficult to self analyze, and I sort of probably have after you leave home and you you know go and see the world and you get to have a job and you fall in and out of love and all those kind of things. You sort of it does become a bit clearer the the bond that you would have had growing up when it's just your reality, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm. going through life. Um, because I don't remember my mum very much at all. Like I don't remember what she was like too much. It's because I was four when she passed away of breast cancer. And, yeah, and so you just, yeah, you just know you're a little bit, you've got a different set of circumstances. But, um, yeah, the older you get, the more you appreciate what it must have been like for a, a single father and two kids going through, you know, and bringing them up and, and that kind of thing. And, yeah, I've just got the absolute biggest admiration for him for being able to do that. Because then, you know, when, once you have someone that you love and imagine losing them, you're just like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Like, that would have been 
absolutely horrible. I think growing up, you sort of think about it in your own context a bit, but as you grow and mm. you develop that, that empathy, um, yeah, I really think it's yeah quite an amazing thing. And yeah, hats off to anyone doing the single parent thing. That's that's huge. It's colossal. What about how this experience may have made you perhaps more introspective? Like, do you think that's a stretch or do you think that going through something so young and growing up with a family dynamic that you had sort of made you maybe, I don't know, have more empathy or have more critical thinking skills? Because they clearly are skills that you have right now. You've made a whole career out of being empathetic and critically thinking and good at broadcasting. Do you think that came early? Um, uh, it's so difficult to to say how much that experience affected my um, my view on the world. I think it definitely made... I think it's a point of difference and I think, you know, everyone has one to a certain extent but when you're in a moment and someone assumes something of you due to that being the norm or saying something like um, things where, oh, didn't your mum ever teach you to, you know, put your shoes outside or wipe your shoes on the mat or something like that and you've got to go, oh, and do you say actually she's passed away or you just smile and sort of nod because they're not... They're not intending to be, you know, insensitive. It's just they sure. don't know and it's just the assumptions. And I think I think these days, particularly with the internet and then even coming into Twitter and whether it's, you know, racial issues or, you know, when it comes to people's sexuality and just these assumptions are starting to really um, pull away. And I've got a really small example of that. But I think potentially that is something that I learned early is never to assume what someone's been through or is going through yeah. uh, mm. what their experience is because, yeah, there's just a little difference in your own life that you've noted <laughs> it mm. doesn't feel the best when other people assume it of you. So, um, yeah, that could potentially be part of it. Mm. Take us to your second book. We asked you, what book would you recommend to anyone who needs a good laugh? You bent our own rules and you came back with two books both by Sean McAuliffe. <laughs> you said, I think it's actually really hard to write a funny book. Trust me, I've tried. One yep. person who is great at it is Sean McAuliffe because he's a genius. Now, we will focus a little bit more on the president's desk because that's the one that we researched, Zara. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I was more drawn to. For sure. <laughs> we got the power here, Mish. Yeah. The blurb of that book describes it as an alternative history of the US with an outrageous, absurdist reimagining of everyday life as president where Sean McAuliffe takes us inside the Oval Office to observe each president at work at the desk. What did you love about it? I really liked, and I think it's the same as the other one, I think it's a good idea where Sean McAuliffe's obviously interested in politics, how people do, and the, the passing of time. And so he's taken taken the president's desk, being it's the same desk and multiple presidents use the same desk. And using that as a tool to examine, you know, sometimes the history, loosely, I'll <laughs> emphasise loosely, <laughs> but then taking that to spiral off into his own um, fantastical world of absurdity, which I think, yeah, I think when it comes to even coming up with ideas for a podcast, you know, you can't just have you and your friend talking, although... Matt and I try every Monday to Friday <laughs> to do that <laughs> from 5am. But I find it really helps having, um, yeah, a, a fulcrum to hold on to and then you can build build off it, something to um, to grow from and a, and a thread that can, then you can experiment with and go, with and, and go from. And the, the president's desk is an example of that when he's been able to, yeah, use it. And so I just, I just find, yeah, his, you know, puns once again, although he, does, he doesn't use it quite as much as, as other people, but he always surprises you. And, that, and that's what humour is to a lot, of, a lot of an extent is, yeah, 
a surprise, which then brings on the laughter. And so, and I find, you know, with why I say it's very difficult to do it in a book, it's because you're, you can only do it as quickly as the person is reading. You then need, they need to quickly use their imagination (laughs) in order to do it. But if you're watching a TV show, it's sort of, it's a, it's a lot more passive. It's coming on. The editing can have a big part of it. It's the, the facial expressions as well as the... Tone of your voice. The tone of the... It could be a funny voice. It could mm. be a funny walk. It could be so many different things. But in the book, it's like to be able to, yeah, use each person to interpret the, the funniness. It's super difficult. And so, yeah, he's able to do sit, like flip sentences around. It's it's really, really extremely clever. And so anything by Sean McAuliffe, whether it's TV or, or literature, I find myself having a good laugh at. Because I'm so interested in that line you did send to us, which was, it's really hard to write a funny book. And I was like, going back through the archives of things that I've read, and I think mm. lines that are funny really stand out to you. And when mm. I laugh in a book, which doesn't happen that often, I like really appreciate the laugh because I don't expect it to come. Yeah. They're not as obvious, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I really, like, you guys wrote a very funny book as well as being poignant and everything. But looking at like... <sighs> The, the way the bits that are really punchy and really stand out are the sort of um, the dot points, whether it's dudes you date in your 20s and that yeah. sort of thing. And, and yeah, a lot of the humour comes through the relatability, I guess, of of that side of things. And I was just reading Sam Mack's book, uh, The Weatherman from Sunrise, because uh, um, I hosted his book launch because we're reasonably good friends. And his book is funny, but in a similar way, it's though he's got a few dot points and he can, he can really punch with there and a bit of self-depreciation. But I think there's a lot of laughing through relatability mm. and that sort of thing, the funny because it's true side of things. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, to be able to build like a character from scratch to explain all their, you know, idiosyncrasies and what, what they like and then to put them in situations in which they hate it, you can really relate to them. It's like it's a lot of world building and a lot of editing and a lot of help and a lot of luck, I think, in the end yeah. <laughs> to make it not lame. And I'm not, I'm not, and I'm only saying that not because I think mine isn't lame, it's because mine is lame. It's like, wow, there's certain ones, it's very difficult to get some real good punchy jokes in there, which, you know, particularly if you're writing young adult, adult fiction, which my book ended up being, um, yeah, to do it so kids don't think this person's just trying too hard. Yeah. And you know, It is that a fine line, a yeah. fine line between funny and cringy. Yeah, oh, so true. That's <laughs> and even it. sometimes I read back my own stuff, I'm like, oh, God, that's definitely cringy and definitely not funny. Yeah, I read I read my book back sometimes through the editing process and I'm like, oh, I can see what I'm going for there, but it's like... <laughs> just doesn't hit. I haven't why, landed the and, jump yet. Yeah, it's like, why doesn't it hit? You've got to yeah. try and figure it out. And it could be because you've used the wrong word or it could be because, you know, the eight chapters before that didn't build it up enough. And so Scrap if you want to make it work better, you got to redo the whole thing there. It's like, oh, it's such a difficult process. Sean McAuliffe is clearly something of an inspiration to you, someone mm. that you look up to and that you admire the work of. Did you have that kind of growing up and figuring out that you wanted to be in comedy and broadcasting? Was that Sean McAuliffe or what were the kind of comedians that you were looking to? Um, it was a number of things. I won a prize at high school and it was a $50 Warnable Books voucher. One, one of those end of year assembly things they give out, you know, things. And I got one of those and went down to Warnable Books and I took a book that looked funny from the cover and it was the the Chaser's annual, um, com- <laughs> it's a book they put out at the end of every year because the Chaser, who have done the Chaser's War and everything and a lot of TV stuff, but they also, they started as a satirical newspaper <laughs> around, I guess, Sydney Uni. And so then at the end of the year, they compile it and put it in a book. And <laughs> the cover of this was John Howard in a dressing gown in a bed with George W. Bush. I guess it was about 2004, the war was sort of going on, was that really big, you know, um, George W. Bush's little <laughs> Deputy Johnny kind of thing. For sure. And I think... 
yeah, you know, you overhear comments from your parents and that kind of thing. So you're starting to form political opinions and that. And so I look through that and I, I found it really clever that um, that satire of fake news articles, which can be making a point, they can be really stupid. And the Batuta Advocate's a real modern example of, of that, mm. um, which I've got a lot of respect for as well. They're able to do that funny thing. The Yeah, the... I found that a lot of inspiration out of, of reading those and so I ended up getting the Chaser Annual every year and read through all these really silly articles um, which they came up with and I found that really inspiring alongside uh, the books from the Working Dog crew which were quite hilarious. They were a parody of like a Lonely, lonely Planet and they'd come up with fake countries right. and just write this fake travel guide to That's it. Funny. And I, that was a really great way of doing something funny because, yeah, obviously the knowledge of people's um, have of Lonely Planet already and then doing a twist on it and also there'd be an expert in there who's an expert on rich travel and they'd only go to the richest places and they'd stay at the finest mm-hmm. hotels and you can go really absurd with that and the same people, uh, they'd on the opposite end, it's the budget traveller who gives you tips for, <laughs> on, on a budget and so they could laugh laugh at those people. I think one of them was like, he's the only person to have travelled the world and made a profit. He's <laughs> <laughs> one of those. And so, yeah, I found that really inspiring, not the least of which because I found out that the Working Dog crew also made The Castle, the film yeah. The Castle. Mm. And then they're doing these books and then um, they do a TV show like Thank God You're Here and stuff like they're that. All behind, um, are they behind something that's on TV now? Are you? Have you been paying attention? That's yeah. The, yeah, that's it. They've yeah. Been- They've been like clearly some of the biggest names in comedy. Yeah. Probably through our lifetime. Absolutely. Did you look at people like that, like the Working Dog Crew or Sean McAuliffe or, you know, even reading Sam Mack's book now maybe mm. and think, yeah, comedy is something that I'm good at and I want to go into? Um, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> so the thing I respect about <laughs> So why are you dipping the... your toe in so many things? <laughs> exactly. Well, the thing I respect about those people are that they haven't pigeonholed themselves. They, tr- they try something different. And so I think more than the... Um, inspiration about getting into comedy, I got the inspired of like, oh, if you feel like doing something, there's, it's possible to to mm. try different things. You don't have to define yourself as a, you know, stand-up comedy. You don't have to be, you don't have to work in TV. You don't have to be an author. You can have a go at different things. And so, yeah, that's why I guess the inspiration of going, oh, I feel like doing tap dancing, but also I really like footy. Um, but you don't <laughs> have to pick one and, you know, stick into one profession. So that's why I think I like, you know, doing books and then podcasting and then DJing and running for parliaments yeah, occasionally. We, and we, <laughs> we will get, get there. Oh, really? We're planning okay. on it. But I'm interested in this book in particular that you brought and maybe maybe I'm just like creating links that don't need to be there, but I'm going to create them anyway. Because this book that you brought, The President's Desk by Sean McAuliffe, is this really funny sort of overlapping between politics and comedy. And you have also, you have made a career out of comedy, but once you finish comedy, as you said, at Triple J Breakfast, you ran for parliament as an independent candidate. Mm. I want to know about that because I have asked you this in passing before, but I do want to ask you kind of more properly, what was it about that decision? Was there anything that drove you to sign up to do that? Like no one, not many people just say, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I think like most things, I, I, I kind of fell into it where I don't think too far ahead in that my goal is to be in parliament and to go to Canberra and do that kind of thing. My, I think like a lot of people is relatively disillusioned with the way politics is run because of, I think, the party system and the way that, you know, good people can, you know, can be in these parties on both sides and they can be really hamstrung and not talk openly about things and like 
say the, the other opposition party is the absolute worst. I'm like, well, they're not the absolute worst. Can we just actually yeah. <laughs> talk Let's about what's going on? Let's just simmer it down a little bit <laughs> you know, and unless, have a conversation. Unless they are the absolute worst. Sometimes <laughs> they are. But um, <laughs> that of like, oh, I wonder what it would take to run for parliament. And so mm. you get on the Australian Electoral Commission website and you go, well, you've got to fill out this form. I'm like, okay, cool. You've got to, you've got to pay a $2,000 deposit. I'm like, okay, you've got to get 100 signatures from the electorate. And say, like, okay, well... You know, I could do those things. That's fine. And then I end up on the roll. And I was like, not going <laughs> to. I sort of launched it when I was at a. I went and DJed in, in Warrnambool. I knew, and, this, I knew this is where it was going to. Um, <laughs> Based on your facial expressions. I was DJing and um, I'm like, and it was, I think, the Easter weekend. And on the. Were you of sound mind? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yes and no. At the end of the comedy festival. So we just run a comedy festival venue for a month and then I left it on the last night at 9pm. Dad drove me back to Warrnambool. I got on stage at 1am and said, hey, my forms are due on, <laughs> on Tuesday morning. Come up here and sign my documents. I'm running for parliament. Let's do this. And then a few people came up and then this one kid is like, oh, I'll go around and get some signatures for her if you want. I'm like, sweet, bro, do it. And um, I think he was not of sound mind. <laughs> <laughs> we go around and getting these signatures, which is great. I ended up getting a few more. It takes quite a bit to get 100 in the end, I've realised. But um, I got them in literally probably with an hour to spare on the Tuesday morning before they're due and they checked them and then said, there's this many invalid signatures, you need another four. Oh, my God. <laughs> Some people I, were not of sound mind to sign yeah, properly. <laughs> well, you've got to be in the electorate or they didn't write yeah. their phone number in or there was some problems with it. So I was running the streets of Warnable quickly getting a few more signatures, <laughs> got it in with about eight minutes to go. But I'm like, oh, I'm not going to start campaigning till next week because I've got to do these things. But then the role goes out and everyone's aware that you're on the role and I'm getting called from Triple J News is like, is this you? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. But um, the idea is, you know, leaving it that late, doing it, it was more about showing that it's possible to to run. It's possible to have a candidate who's not just going to tell you what you want to hear mm. necessarily. Um, and it's not someone who's, yeah, beholden to the to the other people in the party um, in order to, you know, water down what they say. And also young people, there's so many people who are disillusioned and like don't bother voting or just donkey voted or that sort of thing. It's like, no, this is so important. Mm. <laughs> and giving them another opportunity or at least telling them, you know, Look at the policies. You can change something if you if you put your vote in a, in a good place. And you know, not only that, you could tell your friend about it and get them to put a vote mm. in your place. So you know, get online, have a talk with people, and yeah, see where it goes. And only then are we going to turn turn the ship around. I reckon. Yeah. Was there a particular life experience, or like a conversation you had with a mate, where you're like, "This is something that I actually want to do," because it's it's not completely random with your explanation, but it, um, is, it is something that's quite curious for a person to put th- themselves in that position. I think, it, no, it was, um, <clears throat> it was a long-standing sort of thought. I think I'd been yeah. interested for a long time. I, I should do that one day. And then when one political party, you know, savages the other, well, let's, let's name names here. <laughs> You're amongst Labor friends. Party, you know, changed leaders twice, mm-hmm. you know. Gillard, back to Rudd, Mm. the other party absolutely slammed him. And, you know, rightfully so, Mm. said, you absolute disgrace. You're playing politics when we should be helping the country. There's so many things we've got to do. You're more worried about the numbers, the hashtag Labor spill, Lib spill, you're worried about that. They come in, do exactly the same thing. (laughs) And the other people can't say, well, what are you doing? Because they did it at the same time. They're pretending like it's fine when they do it. It's a charade. Everyone's playing charades. And so it was a thing that was really annoying. Comedy festival is finishing up. I I had time. <laughs> I may as well do it now. What's the point of 
kicking it down the road. And I think it's more a um, why wait decision rather than a, you know, there was something that totally spurred me on. And so, yeah, that that was sort of why (laughs) it came down to it. But I got a call from a political party the other day asking if I would run for them. Did you? What did you say? Said I'd think about it, but probably (gasps) no. Because being the political party was one of the um, most annoying parts about it. So I'm yeah. like, if I, if I would go again, It'd be um, which I wouldn't ru- ru- rule out, it would be uh, an independence yeah. Yeah, thing. Interesting. All right, well, watch this face. <laughs> hey, Alex, let's talk would about- Would you run? Mm, no. No, I think, um, I think both of us, and I'm saying this from both this of us because be we've just done, we've done a bunch of personality tests in the last mm. week and we figured out that we're practically the same person, just in different cellular yeah. form. Great. I will answer with both of us and you can correct me, Zara McDonald. <laughs> I don't think we'd be able to deal with the slow-moving parts yeah. oh, of political parties. Like, we yeah. like making decisions Quickly. and doing it right then. Yeah. And I cannot deal with coming to a decision in my own head and then not seeing it come to fruition into, like, yeah. in a year. I, I totally agree. And that's one of the things that would turn me off running for it because the change that you would have to be satisfied with yes, you have would be to so incremental and take so long that it would be such a tough thing to wrap your mind around. Mm. Like I think about looking at Penny Wong, um, Labor senator, um, who is in a same-sex relationship when Mm. the plebiscite came through and Mm. she'd been in there and campaigning for years. And it's something you dedicate your life to and you're like, well, if we go, you should have just done like that and we'll move on, do something else important, you know. Um, But just go through that fight and the backs and the forth and the backroom deals and those kind of things, it's like, you're right. Who would bother putting themselves through that? What rational person would bother signing up and going? And that's, well, that's I, I bothered from the the safety net of having a highly unrealistic chance of getting in, you know. And so that that was a you know what made me feel more comfortable. I have talked mm-hmm. to another high profile Australian media personality recently. Um, who, who, ran, who ran a few years ago, wink, wink. Who had never run, but who said that they'd considered running. Right. The reason they didn't would be that they'd probably win. Oh. And that's annoying. And I'm going to try and get them to run anyway because I would like a lot of people, rational yeah. people, who can have a conversation and not make judgments based on anything else other than will this help Australia mm. and the world. Well, I think And that they're currently not doing it that way. It'll, it's what will help us get elected, what will help us get to the next thing. A lot of us look at Parliament now and don't really see any of ourselves in it for good reason, yeah. particularly in government too, I think. And so I think seeing people like you would be incredible. And as Mish said, I, I couldn't do it, but I definitely respect the people that could because you've got a lot more patience than I do. And in many ways... This is often the way to make change. Like sometimes Mm. change has to be slow for good or bad. Your third book that we asked you to bring today was what book made you really think about your place in the world? And you came to us with Rutger Bregman's Humankind. And when you wrote to us about this book, you said... His latest book, Humankind, is really fascinating. It argues that human beings by nature are kind, nice people rather than the way things are often depicted. It was really interesting to think about. Mm. I am really excited to talk about this book because I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it. What drew you to this book? Were you gifted it? Had you heard about it? Did you go out and buy it? I stumbled across an article called The Real Lord of the (laughs) Fries. Lord of the Fries. (laughs) Sorry, I'll tell you what's on my mind. Um, The the real Lord of the Flies, which was an article in The Guardian and I didn't know it was by Rutger Bregman until I'd finished reading it and we sort of investigated because I really wanted to talk to the author of the article. It turned out to be him and it was a chapter from his book because 
He, like many people, had read Lord of the Flies. I'm not sure. Have you guys yeah, read yeah, Lord yeah. of the Flies? I haven't read it. I've heard of the fry shop named after it. <laughs> <laughs> have you not seen the movie or read the book at all? No. Nah, sorry. It, it is about these young boys who get trapped on an island, no parents, mm. and they it's they sort of make their own society. And I'm paraphrasing because I've heard so much about it. I haven't right. actually read it. So apologies to you if you're listening and you're like, <laughs> Lord of the Flies, one of my favourite books. It's incredible, that kind of thing. Because I'm... Yeah, absolutely paraphrasing this synopsis, but where things descend and they turn into the sort of more animalistic version of themselves. And so hurt each other and kill each other. Yeah, deaths are involved because, you know, young boys left to their own devices running amok. Um, Yeah, this is how it devolves because this is human nature. Yeah. Right? Whereas the article that I read, The Real Lord of the Flies, um, was Rutger, who, like many people, grown up on this book, thought it was interesting, and then decided to think, oh, I wonder if there's an actual situation so we can feel what actually happened rather than this author's, you know, fictionalised version of what would happen. And he found that these these young boys from around the Tonga sort of area had stolen a fishing boat, gotten wrecked on an island, and were there for about a year until they got rescued. What? And it turned out they were actually quite nice to each other. Yeah. They, they came well, up, lovely. they survived, they helped each other. There were arguments at times, but they... They got through. One kid broke his leg. They had to look after him for a while. And then they eventually got rescued by this Australian ship dude. <laughs> ship dude. I believe that's what they, <laughs> that's they the call it. That's the This Australian dude who was sailing past rescued them. And he's still he's still alive up in Queensland. Oh, my and it's God. Like, it's an incredible article. I'm like, it's... we've got to talk to this dude. And it turns out that was an excerpt from his book, Humankind. And he goes through many different realisations. And one of which was, well, in reality, they were very nice to each other, okay? Mm. Um, and the author, looks at the author of Lord of the Flies and it turns out he had a pretty pessimistic view on the world, you know, partly due to his upbringing and various other things. Um, I think, I believe there was alcoholism and there was, yeah, quite a, you know, pessimistic view of the world. But he went and researched a bunch of things and he found sort of studies and evidence to say that on balance, human beings are quite good people and their first reaction is to be nice and welcoming and it was only, I guess it was only once we started owning land and we started started having that sort of agricultural thing and things being mine and the outs, outside people trying to take things away from us did this sort of develop and that's only been cemented through um, fear being quite a large driver of behaviour and mm. including, you know, watching the news these days and, you know, whether it's true crime podcasts or whether it's, you know, various other things that make us think that, you know, underneath there's a thin veil that holds society together, whereas, yeah, his his thing was we're actually kind of nice people. And, I yeah, you do meet nice people around quite a bit. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was really interesting to look at it and he goes through, obviously, the depths of human um yeah, unkindness to each other, whether it is around World War II and the Holocaust or, or you know, even those famous Stanford prison experiments and, mm. and various things. And it, and it turns out, yeah, he, I think he argues really well that um, there were some circumstances in that which showed that on balance there are there are mainly good people who are, who are kind-natured. And, yeah, I, I like thinking about those kind of things as well. And so I thought it's it was It's lovely really, to think about yeah. stuff like that. Well, it feels like a real conversation about are you a hopeful slash optimistic person? Mm. Are you a realistic person in the middle? Which I kind of hate saying realistic as if being hopeful isn't realistic. Mm. Or are you a pessimist? Where, where, do, you would sit, you s- where do you sit, Michelle? I'll ask you first. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I feel like... Okay. Sorry, I'm turning the table no, I'm ready. here. I'm ready. I thought you might do this. I think day-to-day, unfortunately, sometimes I can be pessimistic because mm-hmm. I have an anxiety disorder. So I think day-to-day, sometimes I assume the worst-case scenario is going to happen. 
um, like mm. whether that's running late for work or just like small things. I think big picture across my life, I'm very optimistic, mm. very hopeful about the world, hopeful that people have pure intentions more than people kind of having, I don't know, yeah, that's Machiavellian intentions or something yeah. like that. I mean, Matt had a conversation because he found out that I don't have a password on my phone. <laughs> and, um, that is optimistic. That's, yeah. That's, and I'm like, oh, I, I'd prefer if someone found it, like it's probably someone who's going to be quite nice yeah. and go through the contacts and ring my most recent or something like mm-hmm. that and get it back to me quickly rather than it's like, all right, well, how do I... How do I do this? And so, yeah, I just took the <laughs> took the example that That's a okay. nice person had find it, and it's worked before. Yeah, I've had a person find it and Facebook message my friends and got a, got a phone back to me that fell out of my pocket when I stacked it on the ski slope. It was <laughs> a massive stack as well. Oh my god, you guys! They're never small stacks on the no. ski slopes. <laughs> uh, it's so funny that you say that about like I would say, Mish, you're hopeful. I would say I'm like a hopeful realist, and you're clearly actually quite optimistic in some ways, like a hopeful optimist because mm. when I, I've listened to, to a few um, podcast episodes with Rutger Bregman and he dictated like the difference he finds between hope and optimism and sometimes, no offence, he preferred hope than optimism. <laughs> but some, one of his quotes I found really interesting and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. He said, I always prefer the word hope instead of optimism because it seems to me that optimism can come across as a form of complacency where you mm. say, don't worry, things will turn out to be okay. What yeah. do you think about that as an optimistic guy? Yeah, I would agree with that because, you know, I think one of the big things facing our generation and the next and the next generation, obviously, is climate change and the, the devastating effects that will have. I am not optimistic that we'll do enough to not make our lives to a certain extent miserable. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm I'm sure and I'm hopeful that we will make the best of it when it's there. It'll be our own fault for a little while, but I'm not optimistic that things will turn out well, but um, I'm hope- hopeful that we can we can deal with it and turn things around. Mm. Yeah. Talk to us about your day-to-day then, because we were <laughs> but avoiding the um, very worrying chat about climate change in the future, which I totally, I agree. I think a lot of our friends, even Zara and I, had a chat on the way into work mm. about how many women or how many people in general are not wanting children or mm, wanting limited yeah. numbers of children because of climate change and because of overpopulation and all mm. those kind of issues. So, that, like, that comes to that agree. self-sacrifice thing. It's yeah. like what, you know, that's obviously a big part of life which people are deciding to forego mm. um, and at their own sort of potential expense if, they, if they're keen to experience, you know, what it is like to bring a new generation to the world in order to, for the bigger benefit of society. That's a really selfless act. It's like those career politicians who do it all to try and make positive change. And yeah, I'm not sure if I'd be down to do it, but mm. utmost respect to people who are putting others in, you know, in front of their own. It's incredibly selfless. Yeah. Like incredibly selfless. Talk to us about you day to day though, because Zara and I were chatting about this episode and we're like, there are people in the shameless office that we work with who every day wake up with intention and they mm. repeat affirmations to themselves and they set an intention for the day, for the week, for the month, for the year. And some of the girls come in and actually read out their affirmations for that day or inform us what they're actually aspiring towards. Zara and I are not those people. We are very <laughs> haphazard. We kind of roll out of bed and just begin the day. When I started mm. hearing that people did this, I was like, I have no focus on any of my days. <laughs> Do you have any of that? No. No. Like sometimes I'll check my phone the night before and go, oh, there's a good basketball game will be on tomorrow. That'll be my, that'll be my morning. <laughs> or, you know, 
yeah, something will happen. And yeah, I would have committed to something a while ago. I was like, oh, that's coming up. I should get ready for that. I am trying to get better. I find I'm pretty good at keeping things in my head. My mm. partner's a really big list maker. And so it really needs to order those kind of things. And I'm sort of, I need to put things on the calendar now. And, that, and I do find that helpful. Uh, there are certain times where there are too many things going on, a few moving parts. Mm. I need to sort that out. Today being one of them with various things happening and things I need to do. But um, no, I'm very much a... I play it by ear and um, just focus on the priorities, what I need to prioritise first in the moments rather than, um, yeah, looking at it in a more holistic <laughs> holistic manner. Safe space here because we're the yeah. same. Hey, there's it's very reactive. Yeah. Like today I went to the gym because I realised last night, I'm like, ooh, I did the uh, the three lines of the of the chocolate last night, the three rows. <laughs> Alongside the uh, the salt and vinegar chips, the pre dinner. So I'm gonna, I might just pop in this morning. It's a very sort of cause and effect kind of life I live. Really, <laughs> <laughs> there was um this great conversation. I think it was between Brené Brown and Russell Brand once that I heard, and I brought it up with so many people. It was like the most annoying conversation starter. I would <laughs> ask people, but I'm interested in what you think in the context of this book. And I think Brené's like favorite quote, or one of her really iconic quotes, is like, "Assume people are doing the best that they can." Mm. And I want to know what you think about that. Like, do you try to live your life, particularly with this book in mind by Rutger Bregman, that people are doing the best they can? Do you really try to kind of internalize that sense of empathy and compassion? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I think in a general rule, they absolutely are. And if they're not, it's usually because they've been treated in a way in their life where they aren't you know, treated with love and respect and compassion and and they've got their own difficulties, which then gets reflected outwards in the world. And so it's obviously not an excuse for why people (laughs) can treat other people really poorly or, uh, yeah, act really selfishly or, yeah, really mean to people. But I certainly think, you know, when people do that, it reflects more on them than it does on, on yourself. Why? What do you? What do you reckon? If you have you come to a decision, then I guess if you no, talk about it a fair bit, you haven't actually decided where you where you lay. I yet. think because so. initially, when people when you hear that question straight away, like, do you think people are fundamentally trying to do the best they can? Mm. I think your instinct maybe is to think, well, I know people that don't do the best they can, <laughs> and then I think hearing them unpack it straight away, I was like, no, people are absolutely doing the best they can. But when I ask people, their process seems to be the same as what mine was. Mm. She's talking about me. No. no. <laughs> Like my siblings and my family, people yeah, yeah, are like, yeah. no, I can think of people who I wish were trying to do better. And mm. it's like, okay, well, let's like actually unpack that and mm. why that is. And I think hearing two people like Brene Brown and Russell Brown unpack it, I was like, oh yeah, like absolutely people are trying to. And, and Brene had done the same. She said that like when she had first answered that question to herself, her answer was no. And now she very much pushes this narrative that assume people are. Well, I think in that Humankind book, Rutger Bregman does say that it's often the people who aren't doing that are of the assumption that you are only being nice to them for similarly selfish reasons mm. and that other people are out to get and everyone's in it for themselves and and that kind of thing. When, beg your pardon, that's that's really not the case as far as I've found in the, for the majority of things. And so, yeah, it's interesting. It, it's mm. like... Wow, mm-hmm. we can't we can't come to a definitive answer. No, um, we and we won't, but we'll try. There's um, <laughs> it's weird because we've been having heaps of conversations as well. I don't know if it's 2021 or what's in the air at the moment, but Zara and I've been having lots of conversations around 
what does it mean to be a good person? Mm. Like we always want to keep a touch point with like, am I being a good person? Am I living out a life that makes me a good person? Mm -hmm. And I think books like Humankind really bring that to the forefront, right? Like, am I helping the people around me? And we want to ask you a pretty big question, but it's your last meaty one. So then you can kind of... No, I love this. I got in trouble (laughs) for asking a big question the other day. So I I was in a group with people and someone was like, oh, I was going on these Tinder dates and it's just these awful conversation topics. And I asked, oh, you know, what three topics, you know, you know when you can invite three people yeah, alive yeah. or dead yes. to a party? Oh, yeah, like, love that. what three topics, you could pick anything to have on a conversa- on a date, what would you have? And they're like, well, you you tell me first. And I think <laughs> mine were, I <laughs> I'll said, take the stage. <laughs> why, why are you why you are? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that is a great question. And, um, so love getting deep on this. Okay. you got the right person. Well, tell me. What kind of person do you want to be and how do you kind of define goodness in a person? How do you measure that in your own life? Um, yeah, I think... Oh, man, so stumped. Goodness is such a, such a diff- difficult scale to, to really articulate, but I feel if you are, you know, trying your best in, in yourself... Mm. Um, if you're doing things that make you happy and not making other people unhappy, you know, at, without the expense of other things and bringing positivity, and I think, yeah, I think that makes you, I think that makes you a good person, mm. you know. Um, it's interesting. I've been thinking about it a bit more, particularly when it comes to the sort of that work-life balance. When it comes to, you know, I'm pretty bad at texting back to people. I can, you know, not reply to, you know, random Insta DMs, you know, particularly recently a lot. I'm just trying to sort of, I'm trying to not feel guilt about those things recently because there is that, you know, that guilt that hangs around a lot of us um, when it comes to whether we are a good person or not. And there can be so many things which come up, but a lot of those are, are demanding for a time that you can't give to people mm. without it being expensive yourself. And so, yeah, trying to be better at, you know, if I do write an email back, not be groveling. It's like, I'm so sorry it, I didn't reply back to you at Sunday night at 9pm, you know, and it took till Tuesday because I had other things going on because I feel you can be kind and polite whilst also, you mm. know, saving some time and mental energy for yourself. And I think I think the world currently is figuring that out and where the best place to lie is. Mm. You know, you can obviously take it too far where it's like, yeah. I am the protagonist of this story and I'm going to go through it. It's You're all my what. side characters. Exactly right. But, um, yeah, I feel being aware of things and, and helping those uh, less fortunate than yourself is, mm. is a one way to, to be a good person. Mm. I remember I heard Jim, Jamila Rizvi say something once. She probably doesn't even remember saying, mm. but I remember she said like, sometimes I've got to stop giving energy to people like at work or all day because I get home and to the people that I love, I have nothing left. And it's mm. like that idea of like, yes, it's it's good to be good to everyone, but you can't be good to everyone if it comes at the expense of the people that you love and spend the most time with because you feel like you can kind of treat them the mm. worst, if that makes sense. Mm. So I feel like that's a really good line too for yourself. It's like, what is goodness in me? Because oh, you can feel like you owe people everything. Yeah, and I've been in big conversations recently about those priorities and, yeah, when it comes to prioritising the things that are most important, you, you can really take those things for granted a lot. Like, it's like, okay, that's... If you are spinning plates you know, the people that are closest to you, your immediate work, your immediate friends, your immediate family, your partner, those plates can be so spun that you think, I can just go on these other ones for as long yeah, as I want because yeah. these ones are just going to keep on spinning. But every now and again, you do need to give it an extra 
They're also the Extra most flick. Yeah. The, to continue the analogy or the metaphor. They're the most <laughs> precious plates, and yes. I think sometimes they're the ones that get the least amount of attention. I certainly Absolutely. know that in myself, like friends totally. and stuff. Where it's kind of like, oh, well, they're my friends, they're constants, when mm-hmm. in reality, they're the ones that probably need the most love and the most attention because they're yeah. your people. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We want to take you into our bookshop for a second to finish the show. This is where we ask you three Ooh. quick fire questions. Quick questions. We want to know your answers to them. Are you ready for them? They're they don't all... have to be one word answers. They do okay. not have to be one word answers. I can answers. go a different word. I just <laughs> need to say the sentences and paragraphs quickly. You don't have to bark an answer at us. <laughs> but. Brevity is valued when we're in the bookstore. <laughs> so, welcome to our bookstore, first of all. I can whisper it if, it makes, if it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bookstore in the library. It's a bookstore. It's a bookstore. Okay. There's a book nook over there that looks really bougie that we all... It's a calm bookstore. It's so a calm bookstore. Calm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alex Dyson, what are the books that you display around your home and have you actually read them or do they just make you look cleverer than what you are? <laughs> um, uh, no, it's a real mishmash on the bookshelf. Of a of a bunch of different things, um, and it's different. I've, you know, you've, I've got my current living situation bookshelf, and I've got my bookshelf back in Warrnambool um, <laughs> in my home bedroom, which is a time capsule of Aww. a young <laughs> teenage boy who, uh, despite constant calls from his dad, hasn't gone back and sorted everything out. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an absolute mishmash of autobiographies, or um, uh, yeah. Rutger Bregman, someone who we inter- lucky enough to interview yeah. on the podcast. I've been reading Bill Bertel's ra- latest book, who used to be a Triple J newsreader. Wow. Tell you what, keep your eye on Triple J's newsreaders because they go all sorts of places. But um, Bill was the ABC China correspondent um, for five years and recently was evacuated by I DFAT. This. Yes. This <laughs> was recently, relations, right? yeah, A year ago. Literally, yeah. yeah, six months ago or something. So so you are reading the books on your bookshelf. I am trying to, yes. But, you know, you've got the sh- shameless space between book in oh, there. You don't need to. Uh, amongst. <laughs> I, bought a, I bought a young adult fiction book just because, you know, I try to write in that world, but I haven't, I don't read too much of it. So I mm. thought, you know, I'll go and, I was had a day off and it's like, let's go and put my mind in this headspace as well and it, because I realised I was talking about you know another book and it's sort of bringing in that climate change sort of stuff into it and when the publisher's like oh oh Cli-Fi I'm like what? Cli-Fi <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's a name a for thing. it yeah oh my god it's becoming so prevalent and young people are so interested in that Cli-Fi, um, Cli-Fi. Cli-Fi. what yeah. book can't you finish? oh I haven't given it a proper go but I tr- I'd read, I've been waiting in, to start Boy Swallows Universe oh, for yeah. so long. Haven't done it. Oh. So apologies to Trent. It's a great that. one. It's yeah, awesome, and I hear so many but things. it's tricky. You've got to really push through because the writing style is so different. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And um, I was thinking about this before I came in as well. Um, I've never actually finished Lord of the Rings. I literally <laughs> got up to after they, you know, spoiler alert, after they destroyed the re- ring. But uh, old J.I.R. Tolkien, <laughs> bless him, had a lot of stuff after that as well. And I did manage to push through. I mean, the first 60 pages is the the history of Hobbits, basically, and Bilbo, son of... You know what? No excellent. shame there. And, you know, that's good. and then at the end, it's like he's got there's so much to wrap up and he's going off with the elves oh and gosh. all that sort of thing. It's like I never actually finished it. I so, love that we're um, coming full circle with elves and fairies. I know. <laughs> I know. Back to Hobbits. it. Anyway. Back to it. All right. Last question in the bookstore. What's the last time that you went to the library? Or when is the last time you went to a library? Um, <laughs> it, uh, to actually go to the library, me and my dad walked down to the Docklands Library in Melbourne. 
It's quite a new library. It's yeah. one of the more recently built libraries and it's got like computer games in there. It's got a recording studio, like a music recording studio Whoa. in there. It's got like heaps of stuff. But um, my, I go to my, whenever I go home with my dad because he doesn't have the internet at home. And so we'll go to the library twice a day, usually 9.30 when it opens, usually once later in the afternoon, check out the emails and that kind of thing. And so I head along to the Karangamite Regional Library Services every now and again. Um, no internet at home, so I go down and get a I receipt printed off with the, yes. with the Wi-Fi password <laughs> and log in and uh, away we go. So wow. um, love libraries. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Hey, Alex Dyson, thank you for coming on the books that changed my life. This has been an absolute delight. I probably won't be reading the Artemis Fowl series, <laughs> but I appreciate you bringing them to us and That's everything okay. else you did The today. other ones, the other ones you've sold to us. I think we're both right. going to go out and buy yeah. the other two. Give it a go. Yeah, but maybe not the first. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't see the movie. I'll tell you that. Don't do that. for listening to the books that changed my life with Alex Dyson. If you want more from Alex, make sure you check out the All Day Breakfast podcast with Matt and Alex, but also go buy his book when it drops in all good bookstores now. If you want to continue the conversation, as always, guys, we are on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club. We will be back in your ears next Tuesday, of course, exclusive on the Listener app for another interview about the books that shaped someone else's life. See you then. Bye. Bye.